speak in this moment. I don't think he's calling us to the status quo. He's calling us into deeper relationship. He's calling us to do something, especially as it relates to justice in this world. So let's make this our prayer this morning. In our hearts, Lord, in this nation,
focus on doing justice and loving mercy, please join me in a prayer for justice this morning. To conclude the prayer, I'll be using a bit of text from a song by a songwriter named Audrey Assad. God of love and justice, it is with humble hearts that we recognize that we are imperfect people. We strive to do good, but we often fail. We strive to follow Jesus' example, but we often fail. We strive to seek mercy, but we often fail. We strive to do justice, but we often fail. In spite of our best efforts, we are imperfect. And because of this imperfection, the organizations we form, the employers we work for, the families we raise, the causes we support, and the churches we worship at are imperfect as well. As it does with us individually, this imperfection means that these organizations, businesses, families, and churches also often fail in living out and advocating for justice. For this, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. It is with this perspective, God, that we ask for help. Let the knowledge of our imperfection not be a hindrance to our call to seek justice. Let the enormity of the economic, social, racial, and other injustices that surround us not discourage us from each doing our own part, however small. Let the politicization of these issues not cloud our calling to seek justice. Our loyalty, Lord, is to you and to your will, not to a political party or government. Jesus, we need your example in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit's guidance. Impress upon us the redemption and joy that will fill our own, our own lives and those around us when we are able to provide food for the hungry, resources for the poor, freedom from the oppressed, and joy for the downtrodden. Jesus, open our eyes and remove the calluses that surround our hearts so that we can not only see when people are hurting due to injustice, but so that we can actually feel what that person is feeling. Jesus, give us empathy. We know that we're called to share the burdens of those around us, but we can't do that unless we open our hearts. Please assist us in this. And Lord, when we are able to recognize injustice and feel how it affects those around us, please give us the conviction to do something about it. Provide opportunities for us to change our habits, to serve as advocates within our sphere of influence, to use our voices to shine light on injustice, and to seek justice where it is absent. Father, your mercies are truly never-ending. You've shown us love that we cannot understand. Please help us to do what we can to ensure that everyone, truly everyone, is able to experience this grace and love. Oh, the deeds forgotten, the works unseen, every drink of water flowing graciously, every tender mercy you're making glorious, this you have asked of us, do little things with great love. This you have asked of us. Do little things with great love. Little things with great love. Amen.
this morning for our Unite Reflections. I have a couple of our high schoolers up here with me, and they're going to share a little bit about their, uh, we got some claps for that. Thank you. Yeah, let's clap for them ahead of time. Yeah. We are reflecting on Chick. If you don't know what Chick is, Chick is a once every three years opportunity for students in our denomination to gather together and to worship and experience God in a really cool and profound way. Um, this last summer we went, and so we've been asking our students to share their reflections. So, would you introduce yourselves and tell us um, something fun about you? Um, my name's Aaliyah Anderson. I'm a sophomore at Mount Zoo High School, and I play tennis. I'm Kaylee Nelson. I'm a junior at Irondale High School, and I play an orchestra. But talking is hard. Yes. Yes. No, it's, it's real hard. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. Um, so what is an experience that you had that you was, like a, was a highlight for you? What was something about Chick that you enjoyed? I really liked how close our youth groups got in veteran community, whether it was late night snack parties or talking about some serious things. Um, I really liked one night at Main Stage, the band for King and Country was about two rows behind us. Yeah, if you've ever seen for King and Country live, they do this thing where they come out and like walk across the seats in the arena and just happenstance, we were like two rows in front of them, in front of them when they did that. And so we got to see it really close up. Um, all right, so what is a takeaway? What did you, what is something you learned at Chick that you want to take into life as you continue to grow? Um, so one thing that stuck out to me was the second night of main stage, our speaker was named Megan. She talked about how we need to run with a purpose and that purpose is God. Yeah, the same awesome. speaker also talked about um, how God comes down to us um, using a ladder as a, an example um, that we, w we want to climb this ladder to God, but really God is coming down for us. Yeah, awesome. Thank you both. Can we give them a hand for sharing? That's awesome. take an offering, um, but I wanted to thank you and take a moment to thank you for um, all of your work, especially this past week as we launched our Wednesday night programming, and I just want to encourage you and name the fact that God is at work Wednesday nights in this building, and if you look kind of from week to week and take a step back sometimes and just notice it happens in all of these interactions throughout the night. Maybe it's a student that has felt invisible during their week at school and they come to church and someone greets them by using their name. Or this past week as I was walking down the hallway, one of our um, kids ministry leaders um, who I knew had had an awful week at work had one of our kids run up and yell their name and give them a hug. Um, all of these interactions that take place in this building. Um, but on Wednesday as I was preparing to come to church, I got a text um, from one of our moms who used to attend um, the gathering. Um, she lived at the Naomi Family Residence, which is a partnership that we have through the Union Gospel Mission. And she was attending at the beginning of our partnership about six years ago. And she has, um, she's a single mom with four young kids and lives on the other side of the city, so she doesn't get to attend very often. But she texted me and said, I know that you guys are starting tonight, and I wanted to text you and thank you 
for the way that your church stood in the gap for me. And I feel like as we um, continue to show up on Wednesday nights, that is so much of what we get to do. We get to stand in the gap for people and be a spiritual family at their point of need and at our point of need. So as we give this morning, we give to that effort. There's going to be an email that goes out um, this week that allows you to give specifically towards our dinner on Wednesday night. But we just wanted to encourage you. And if you haven't come yet on Wednesday evening, we would love for you to come and check it out. So let's give this morning. chosen to loose the chains of injustice and unite the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repair of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Scripture, Maddie. 
Well, good morning. Good, well, thank you. <laughs> I really like, I paused and I was like, no, no one's going to say it? Cool. Um, so I have a story to tell you. Uh, I, my first kind of real job in youth ministry was at a church in Kansas City. And I say real job because it was not at my home church and it was at a church um, that I moved to Kansas City to do this internship. And I was uh, about 22-ish, 23. And I was on a staff of youth uh, ministry people. We had two youth pastors, um, one over high school, one over middle school, and we had a bunch of other interns, and I was the only female on this staff. And on that staff, I, well, I got a lot of nicknames on that staff, but one of the nicknames that I got on um, during my time in Kansas City was the Just One, which is kind of a weird nickname, right? Like, we can all just name that that's a weird nickname for someone to give. Um, but I kind of earned it over my entire year and a half that I worked uh, at Hillcrest. But the reason that I got that nickname the very first um, time they called me it was about three weeks into my job. And I had been, you know, in the youth group. We've been doing stuff. And we're at our staff meeting. And uh, we had been, like, processing the week before. You know, how did youth group go? How do you think the kids liked it? Did we have enough snacks? These are things you ask about youth group. And I was like, well, like, I have something that I, I feel like I need to bring up. And so the staff all turned and looked at me, and I was like, well, see, um, there was this freshman girl at the time, and she was one of about six kids in her family. Her last name was Burke. And whenever she came to youth group, which was, like, faithful, she was there, she was one of our normal kids, she was there all the time, every time that our uh, youth pastors saw her, they called her Burke. They just only ever called her Burke. And I knew the reason that they called her Burke was they didn't know her name. But every time when they would walk in and she was standing there at the sign-in desk, they would say, hey, Burke, how's it going? And she would, like, get this look on her face that I could tell that she was really sad that they weren't calling her by her name. That to her, she felt like she was one of six Burks well, eight, if we include her parents, but she wasn't an individual person. And so I bring this up to the staff, and I said, listen, guys, it's not that hard to learn her name. It's Bethany. Like, it's not hard. It, like, it goes along, like Bethany Burke. Like, just, it's the whole thing, just say her name, and it will totally change the way that she interacts with you at youth group. And so that was the day that I got the nickname, The Just One, because I was the person on our staff that kind of made us focus on things that we needed to think a little bit harder about. I became the person that would fight for the underdog within our youth group, and so they gave me the nickname, The Just One. Um, I don't even know if they remember that. Like, I see them every now and then at our pastor's gatherings. I don't know if they remember that. But it stuck with me because it was an identifier of who I was and what my heartbeat was for. And I've always kind of been that person. When I was in eighth grade, I became um, the person who would protect, like, the sixth graders. Like, we had a group of sixth grade girls that, like, would always get picked on. And so I was, like, the eighth grader that would come in and be like, listen, stop messing with my friends. I wasn't great at it because it turned out that I became then like the eighth grade bully that was like being mean to the other sixth graders. So I, I worked it, I've worked it out guys. I'm a little bit better at it. Um, but I've always had this heart for people who are just a little bit on the outside, just a little bit on the margins, who have felt 
um, maybe that they don't belong in a group or in a setting. I've always had this heartbeat um, for them. And it also comes out when I became an aunt. So when my nieces come home and they're crying because something happened, I am ready to go to the mat for them, right? Of course your teacher's unfair. Why would she call you out for talking? Like, that's so unfair. I can't believe it. It's so easy to do that for the people that we love and we care about. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. And so as we came to this Unite series, and it came to that, the, the meeting where they say, hey, Alicia, do you want to preach during this series? Like, which one do you want to preach on? Of course, I said, I, I choose love, mercy, do justice. Dibs, right? That's the one that I want to talk about. Because it's so much of who I am and so much of my heartbeat for it. And so as we continue in this Unite series, um, this morning we look at what does it mean to love mercy and do justice? What does that look like? Two weeks ago when we started this series, Mark talked a lot about unity and what it could look like within the church. And last week, Colleen preached on discipleship. And we talked about how discipleship means that we learn from Jesus, we live like Jesus, and we carry on his mission into the world. And friends, guess what? Loving mercy, doing justice flows right out of that. So this morning, as we go into this text, would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the chance that we get to come together and to worship you. We thank you that you sent your son to give us an example of what living um, well means. And God, as we come this morning, as we talk about what it means to act justly, would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear from you? Would you be the words that I speak and would you be in um, this story today? In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. So I must admit that the f when I said that I wanted to preach on this um, topic, I didn't look at the scripture first. I just said, like, yeah, I picked that one. And I just assumed, I assumed that it would be the Micah 6-8 passage where it talks about what does God expect of you? What, uh, I'm going to say it in, right, in the right order. To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Right? We just sang it. We Chaz talked about how I was going to talk about it. And so I assumed Micah 6-8, that's what we're going to talk about. And then I like looked at what the plan for the sermon series was, and it was actually this text in Isaiah. And I was like, oh, that's different. But here's the thing, friends. Here's a little fun fact for you. You might already know this, and then, you know, great job. But fun fact about Micah and Isaiah is that they are two Old Testament prophets that prophesied at the same time. So Micah was outside of the kingdom walls. He was prophesying to the people of Israel that were the farmers. He was a kid of a farmer. He lived among the workers and the servants, and that's who he was prophesying to during the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet to the king. So over three different kings, Isaiah prophesied what God would have him speak to the kings. So we have two prophets at the same time preaching the same message to various people. Isaiah spoke it to power and to the kings, and Micah spoke it to the people who were powerless and who needed to know that also. And what I love about it, I was talking about it with somebody between services, is that it's the same message. God tells both people to act justly and to love mercy, and that is awesome. So we're going to talk about Isaiah this morning. We're not going to talk about Micah. Isaiah 
was a prophet in the king in the kingdom, right? So he had three different kings that he prophesied over. And when we talk about Isaiah, we talk a lot about the prophecies for Jesus. We talk about for unto us a child is born. We talk about the joy and the hope that is coming when Jesus comes and the Messiah comes. That's what we think of a lot of the times when we think of Isaiah. But Isaiah had a lot of doom and gloom. Isaiah also prophesied that Jerusalem was going to fall, that the temple was going to be destroyed, that the people of Israel were going to be taken out of their land and put into exile, and then he prophesied that they were going to come back from exile and what it would mean to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. These are the things that Isaiah talked about. He was kind of an intense dude. So we're going to get a little intense today. Are we okay with that? some nods of affirmation. We can get intense. It's going to be okay. I promise. We're going to make it. Isaiah 58 that we have before us talks about fasting. And in order to talk about fasting, we have to understand what fasting meant to the people of Israel. So way back in the Torah, Moses had talked about how fasting was supposed to be for the Day of Atonement. The day that the people of Israel would atone for their sins, they would prepare by fasting. It's still a tradition that the Jewish people do today. But over time, they also used fasting in other ways and in other um, rituals. So they would fast when they were mourning or when they were grieving. They would fast um, at times of national emergency. They would fast um, when the destruction of Jerusalem happened and the temple um, was destroyed. The tradition after that was every year on that day, they would fast to mourn what they had lost in Jerusalem and in the temple. Fasting was a way for them to mourn and to grieve. And the promise that they had was that if they fasted, that God would bless them. If they fasted in their mourning, that God would bless them. And so right before the passage that we have in the first six verses of this, what's happening is that the people are complaining because they're fasting, but they're not getting a blessing. They're basically telling God, we are drawing near to you, we are fasting, and you're not doing anything. And so this is a response to the people from God through Isaiah, because that's how prophecy works. God talks to the prophet, and then the prophet says it out to the people. This is a message from God about why they're complaining, about the things they're complaining about, right? And God is calling them out on their fasting, God is calling them out, and he says um, in verses 6 through 7, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? That's a weird response, right? The the question is, God, we are fasting and you're not providing for us, and the response that God gives is this. But here's another layer of context for us. In the time that uh, Isaiah was prophesying, they would fast and they would observe the Sabbath, but they didn't want to, like, lose ground on what they were supposed to be doing, so they would just work their servants harder in order to maintain the status quo of what they were supposed to be doing. So their servants were being oppressed were being um, not given a Sabbath day, not given the chance to fast for the atonement of their sins, not given a chance to grieve. 
the people were actually just making life harder for other people in order for them to do their spiritual ritual. And so what God is saying here through Isaiah is he's saying, like, your fasting is actually hurting other people. The thing that you're doing to draw closer to me is actually making someone else's life worse. And that's not the point here. The point of this ritual is not being fulfilled. The point of a ritual is to go get closer to God, to take a step closer to his heart. And the people weren't providing that proof in their life. Basically, what God was saying is that this is a ritual for the sake of ritual. And he wasn't interested in a ritual for the sake of a ritual. What God was interested in was his people drawing closer to him in order to know his heart more. And the reason he knew that they didn't understand his heart was that they were oppressing other people. They were hurting other people through their spiritual ritual. So they had the practice of ritual down. They knew how to worship God. They knew how to draw close to God, but they were not doing the other pieces of it. And what God is saying through Isaiah, it's in the words, guys, I'm, this is not me, is that if we don't use our ritual to outpour love, our ritual is useless. Our devotion, our one-on-one -on -one time with God, if that is not coming out in another way, it's useless. And that's really intense to say. Like, that's a really scary thing for me as a pastor to come up here and be like, listen, it's really great if you spend your one-on-one -on -one time with God. That's super awesome. You can spend all day reading your Bible and praying. But if you don't do something with that time with God, it means nothing. It means nothing. That's what Isaiah is saying here. And see, he says it even more in verses 9 through 10. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with pointing the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. If you do these things, then your light will shine in the darkness. This idea of light and darkness was all over the Old Testament. We see it into the New Testament with Jesus as the light of the world, calling us to be the light of the world. When we talk about being a light in the darkness, this is what God is talking about. Being a set-apart people who use our relationship with God to make other people's lives better. Now, let's keep going. The light will shine in the darkness because you see in the Old Testament, this value of justice and righteousness was one thing. It's two different words, justice and righteousness. Very often, it's translated all as justice or all as righteousness, but it's two different words. And the reason that it's two different words is that it's two different things, right? Righteousness is your right relationship with God. Justice is your right relationship with the world around you. But interchangeably, with, like they're used interchangeably within the Old Testament. Because these two things are one thing. You can't separate them. But what we've done in our world and in our church is that we've separated them. We think that it's one or the other. I was talking with a friend who's um, at, in seminary and she said this sentence to me. I'm realizing that I've always thought I needed to be one or the other that I need to be a super justice-minded Christian 
or I have to be a Christian who is crazy about Jesus. But this social justice stuff makes no sense to me without a deep relationship with Jesus. And I was like, yes, that's it. Our, this is what Isaiah is saying. You can't be just a super Christian who's really good at spending time with Jesus, and you can't be just a super Christian who's good at telling people like that they deserve worth and that they should be just. You can't be one or the other. You have to be both. And both of those things are important. So if our spiritual practice is not bringing us deeper into the heart of God and outpouring onto the world around us, then what's the point? What's the point of what we do? And the problem is, I think, that we can't take the idea of justice outside of our culture, right? The people of Isaiah were the same way. The people in the world of Isaiah are the same way. We think of justice, and we think of what justice has been defined in the U.S. If you're a U.S. citizen and you are here, or if you are live in the U.S., you can't take the idea of justice out of your culture as an American. And in America, the way that we see justice is we think of the lady justice with the scales, right? We think of this idea that there's got to be a fairness, that there's a supposed equality to our justice system. So there's laws and there's rules that we follow, and that's our idea of what justice is. It's a set of abstract laws. But God's justice is never abstract. In the Old Testament, the things that he says about being a just person is never abstract. It's always about your relationship to one another and your relationship with God. And God is always at the center. The thing about justice in God's eyes is that God is the judge. And even when he's giving justice to his people, even when he is enacting justice, it is never separated from his loving kindness. So when we look at the world and we talk about what is justice, what does it mean to act justly, we can't do it from our mindsets as Americans. We can't do it as our mindsets of millennial or Gen Xer or boomer, whatever it is that your lens is, you can't enact justice out of your lens. You have to enact justice out of God's lens. So what's God's lens? What is God calling us to? I believe that what God is calling us to is for all of his creation to flourish and to have dignity. Every single person. So if God created me, and God wants me to thrive and to have a good life, and he created me perfectly and uniquely, he created me to have dignity and to flourish. We see that in John 10.10. Jesus came to give us life abundant. The problem is that sometimes we stop there. Jesus came to give me life abundant. He created me to flourish. He created me to have dignity. And probably like the five people that I'm closest to, right? Like my nieces, my goddaughter, my mom, my brother, those people are allowed to have human dignity and flourishing. And I never take it one step further. I never take it to the next piece. But if God created all of his creation to be flourishing and to have dignity, then justice asks the question, where is his creation being crushed? Where is they, are people not allowed to flourish? Where are people not given dignity? 
if we believe that all people are created in God's image and all people have dignity and all people have the right to flourish, the question then when we say, how do I act justly, is how do I find the places where that is being crushed, where that is being taken away from that person? That is seeing justice through God's eyes, in my opinion, and I think in Isaiah's opinion. So how do we reshape our view of justice? How do we separate our brain from the way that we have been conditioned to think about what it means to act justly? And this is going to seem odd that I'm going to tell you that the first thing that we have to do is that we have to draw nearer to God. And I only say it seems odd because I'm telling you that that's the, the formula that wasn't working in the time of Israel. But here's the thing. We have to start there. We have to start by drawing nearer to God, and we have to start by trying to understand what his heart is for the world. If you take a deep dive into the Bible and you really open your eyes to see the way that God wants us to treat the world around us and the people around us, you will find this message of human dignity and human flourishing all over. You will see it in the prophets. You will see it in the Old Testament. You will see it in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Revelation talks about it. What we're looking for in our world is for all people to have dignity and to flourish. So you first have to look and see where God's heart is beating. Brene Brown says in her book, Braving the Wilderness, spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and one another is grounded in love and compassion. And I love Dr. Brene Brown, but she's a sociologist. She's an author. I'm a pastor. So I'm going to tell you that that connection, that power that is greater than all of us is God. And I think she believes that, but I don't think she's allowed to write that because she's a sociologist. But that power that inextricably connects us to one another is God. And therefore, our connection to God and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. That's the thing. Creation is meant to be something that we are all a part of together. We are connected in a way that you cannot disconnect. So once we recognize that, to act justly then means to promote human flourishing and dignity in our world. So we draw nearer to God and then we promote human dignity and flourishing in our world. And to start the practice in your life, all you have to do is to ask yourself, where in my world are people not given dignity and are people not flourishing? In my day-to-day -day life, where do I see someone who has not been given dignity? Where do I see someone who is having a hard time flourishing? Is it at school? Is it your teammates? Is it your employer? Is it your employee? Is it someone that you work with? Is it someone that you see when you go to Target? Who is in your life that has not been given human dignity and has not been given the chance to flourish. It starts on a really simple level of just you and your everyday life. Look around. And when we start to have that process in our life, when we start to see the places where people are not given dignity and not allowed to flourish or not given the opportunities to flourish, then we start acting on it. Then we start doing something to be able 
to help them have dignity, to give them back that dignity, and to help them flourish. That's all that acting justly is. Seeing it in your life and then doing something to do it. I have a friend um, named Dominique and he works for the Department of Love, Mercy, and Do Justice for our denomination and he always says at the end of his like talk about um, justice, he always says, not every church is called to everything, but every church is called to something. And I take it a step further and I say, not everyone is called to everything, but everyone is called to something. We are not called to try to do all the justice things in the whole world because, friends, we absolutely cannot do that on our own. We are not called to all the things, but we are called to something. We were created, we were given gifts, we were made uniquely, and we are called to do something with those gifts and with our spheres of influence. Just like my story at the beginning, I've been given a heart for other people, and it's really easy to do that when it's the people that I love when it's the person who I have watched grown up, when it's the people in my youth group, when it's my students, it's really easy to do that. It's really hard to do it when it's someone who doesn't look like me, act like me, think like me, live in the world like me. But to act justly is to do those things for all of creation. It's about learning empathy and learning about the world around us. And it's hard, but it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be something that we are called to because we are created to love others, to act justly. And that's what it looks like to remember to love mercy and to do justice. So who are the people in your life that are not allowed to flourish, who are not given the dignity that you believe that you have as a person of God? Where in the world do you need to act justly and to love mercy? I had in my notes this week that I should probably like have some ideas of what that looks like in your world, right? But here's the thing, I don't know your world. I could make a guess. I could guess where that would be. But I think the bigger thing is for you to be able to wrestle with God, because if I tell you to draw nearer to God, I'm gonna need you to have that dependence on him to show you the places where this needs to happen in your life. So if you're really having a hard time, come talk to me after service. We can probably find a place that you can act justly. But you know the people in your life. You know the places you need to step into. So as we go out, may we remember all of these things. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have given us so much. You have blessed us with your love and your grace and your mercy. And God, as we draw close to you, as we tune our hearts to you, God, would you give us a heart for your people? Would you open our eyes and ears to situations around us every day that need speaking into? Would you give us the strength and the courage to speak to power, to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with you? We pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. As we, uh, as we get ready to close, we're going we're gonna to sing a song that's really familiar. Before we do, I just want to just share some exciting things and just something. Um, as Alicia's been preaching today, we've had a, a few students involved. We had Rachel, who's 
running in right now, right now. Come on, Rachel, I'm actually talking about you. She's coming in to help sing this last song. We've got Maddie Daniel, who's going to be leading this song, and Mitchell. We also had Will uh, to sell, who practiced with us earlier this week, and he got sick with a fever. He was helping take out a doc, and you know. <laughs> so, um, so Eric stepped in to play bass because Jeremy Peepers, uh, Mrs. Jackie has gone into labor, so hopefully there'll be another exciting addition to our church family here very soon. So it's just a, it's a kind of a, a topsy-turvy day, but I want to thank the youth for being involved and leading today, and thank Eric for jumping in at last minute. Um, as you've heard Alicia unpacking um, justice for us today, and that person in your life that doesn't have dignity, you think of the injustice around you. Um, this song, Hosanna, it, it, we sing so much uh, during Palm Sunday and around that time of year, but this is a, a really a song for all seasons. Um, it's really inviting the Lord uh, to save us. Um, as you look into the, the history of that word, um, it's God saves or rescue. And so that's our invitation, Lord. Um, rescue, save, do the work that only you can do around us in our lives and for, uh, for those we see every day. Please stand.
a church service be without a few announcements, right? So just have a seat because there's something important coming. We just want to give you a little picture of Kevin's. We're going to show this short video. We want to tell you a little bit more about what's coming. In 2016, 42,773 Americans lost their battle with suicide. That's 121 people every single day, one person every 12.3 minutes. Did you know suicide is the 10th leading cause of death for adults and the second leading cause of death for young people ages 10 to 24? And we're not talking about it. More teens die by suicide than cancer, AIDS, heart disease, birth defects, stroke, pneumonia, influenza, and chronic lung disease combined. And we're still not talking about it. This is Target Field where the Minnesota Twins play. It seats over 39,000 people. You could fill every seat in this stadium and have 3,000 people spilling out into the streets with the number of people we're losing to suicide every year. And we're still not talking about it. Studies show talking about suicide doesn't make it any more likely that someone will attempt. In fact, it makes it much more likely that they'll seek help. So when suicide comes up in the conversation, be brave and talk about it. Listen without judgment when your family and friends share what they're going through. Ask people, how are you really doing? Know the warning signs and ask directly, have you thought about suicide? Another way to start the conversation is to say these words to everyone you know. Today, I heard someone talking about suicide prevention, and I just want you to know you can always talk to me, no matter how bad things get. We have to talk about this in every community, in every school, in every church, in every home. I'll even host an event with you and help get the conversation started in your area. The truth is, I don't really want to talk about this either. I don't want to tell you about when I was 23 and I picked a day to end it. But at that point in my life, no one had ever talked to me about depression or suicidal thoughts. No one had told me that living could hurt that bad or that there's always help and there's always hope. So I'm setting out to change that. I've got you, my friend, and we're in this together. For more information and resources, visit recklesslyalive.com where you can also fill out a request for us to host an event in your area. We have to tell every person that they matter and this world would never be the same without them. We have to scream from the rooftops that everyone was made on purpose, for a purpose, and they're never alone. So let's talk about this, people. And together, we can make a world with zero deaths from suicide. We're in this together, recklessly alive. On October 24th, which is a Wednesday night, our friend Sam Eaton that was in the video will be with us talking about um, suicide, but depression and anxiety and just building awareness in our community about this important topic. And so we're looking forward to that evening and we're praying into that evening. And so we wanted you to be aware of it um, as a church community, but also um, definitely there is someone in your life who needs to be here on that night. And so we wanna invite you to also invite them to come and share that evening with us. Um, finally, we uh, started this morning before the services, our first week of classes, our Immerse Bible reading class, as well as Marty Maltby is leading a class on Job. And it's not too late to get involved in those opportunities to dig into God's word. Um, so if you'd like to come early in future weeks, we would love to have you a part of those two learning opportunities. So Alicia's going to send us out. always forget to turn that thing on. Uh, 
as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I looked back at my uh, notes from seminary in my Old Testament class, and 2009, Alicia had written in the margins, the hard reality is this, the human struggle to be faithful doesn't disappear. The thing about it that we've learned from all sorts of texts, all sorts of stories of people and God is that the human struggle to be faithful doesn't disappear, but it doesn't mean that we don't try. So this week, as we go out to love mercy and to do justice, remember that the struggle is real and that we are walking in it together. Have an awesome week. It's hard.